Bibles and return again to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're in chapter 7 this morning. Be completing that chapter, verses 18 through 29. 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 29. Have you ever received a gift so generous, so unexpected that it overwhelmed you? That it just, it floored you, it, it humbled you. Because you knew you didn't do anything to deserve such a gift. In 2008, an Indian business tycoon bought his wife Tina a super yacht named Tian. The yacht made global headlines as it was one of the most expensive luxury yachts in the world, reportedly worth $84 million. A pretty unexpected gift. One of the most incredibly extravagant gifts in all of history is the Taj Mahal. It's one of the most famous public displays of affection of all time. A ruler in India in the 1700s spent the equivalent of $827 million in modern currency building the magnificent structure. It was a gift to his favorite wife. The construction took over 22 years and required over 20,000 artisans. Now certainly most of us have never received a gift of this kind A gift like that. But maybe for you, the engagement ring you received years ago. Or the promises you received from your spouse on your wedding day would be your answer to the question of have you ever received a gift so extravagant? Perhaps someone once gave you a car for your birthday or graduation or maybe a smaller gift that was just out of the blue and totally unexpected. Certainly, we've all received extremely valuable gifts of friendship And family in our lives. Now, in the first half of chapter seven, David began, we saw in chapter one, that chapter began with David seeking to build God a house, recognizing I dwell in a house of cedar, a permanent dwelling, a secure dwelling. But God dwells in a tent. God emphatically tells him that he's not the one to build him a house. Instead, he would build David a house, a dynasty, a kingdom that would last forever. This is God's staggering promise, his extravagant gift to David. These promises would not be fully realized until Jesus came. And and they continue on, even today, until he sets up his eternal throne as the son of David, the king. Now, in chapter 7, God reveals the massive, the just overwhelming scope of his plan to David and through David. And now he will respond to God's gracious promises. Let's look together at verses 18 now, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 18, this is the word of our Lord to us, his people. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction 
And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer before you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word together this morning. Our gracious God, we recognize that you alone are God, as David confesses and proclaims here in this prayer this morning. Lord, we confess ourselves that we very often don't live this way. Lord, we serve ourselves as God. We set up idols in our own heart and pursue them as if they can give us what you alone can give us. Lord, we see your name high and lifted up in this passage. And our desire is that you would make your name great among us. That we would turn our hearts, our attention, our eyes fully to you, our God. Help us to do this well this morning by your grace by your spirit, opening our eyes and ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, we see God's greatness is revealed in his gracious promise to his servant. We praise what we value, don't we? We marvel at what we find overwhelmingly beautiful or worthwhile. Now, don't those two words, value and beauty, describe just a small portion of what God is like in his glory. Valuable, beautiful. He's worthy. Yet why do we so often struggle to find him valuable? It's certainly easy to say God is worthy as we're gathered together in a corporate setting like this, but throughout our week, do we think of him? Do we serve him? Do we prioritize him as valuable? And beautiful. 
Why is our praise so often unlike David's here? Why are we so easily preoccupied and consumed by lesser things of this life? Why do we fail to worship him in the splendor of his holiness and beauty? Isn't it because we fail to meditate truly on who he's revealed himself to be through his promises, through his word? God's greatness is revealed in his gracious promise to his servant. This morning, we'll consider together David's response to the staggering promises he made in verses 1 through 17, that God would build David a house forever. We'll examine how we should respond in the same manner to God's grace in our own lives. The text shows us David marveling at God's promises to him, rehearsing God's grace to his people, and finally praying God's promises back to him. So first, David's marveling at God's promises to him. In verse 18, we're told that David leaves his own house now. He moves toward, it seems like he's saying, the tabernacle to pray before the Lord. He's moved to solemn worship and prayer where Israel knows they can meet with God, where God's presence has been with them. David goes there. There are several important things to notice in David's praise and prayer here. First, this is an incredibly God-centered response. He mentions four different names of God, including a rare compound name that we first see in verse 18. The name is Adonai Yahweh. He uses that name seven times. It's a rarely used title for God, but this was the name that Abraham uses in his address to God when God made similar covenant promises to him. And it's as if David knows those, he's remembered those. We're told in other places that David knew that covenant and he's praying that same type of prayer in response back to God. In this prayer, he addresses God 65 times. Notice as well the language highlighting God's promises. Notice how many times he talks about the promises. He talks about God having spoken. He mentions the word. He talks about revelation. He says instruction. David is responding to revelation. To what God has told him about himself. Remember the problem that was stated at the beginning there of chapter 17? David is trying to take the initiative Before God has revealed his plan. And God says, no, that's not for you. You wait on my timing, my initiative. Here, David is now responding to what God has told him of himself. He first thinks about God's past grace in verse 18. And it brings up within David this question. It demonstrates his humility, his awe at what God is doing and has said to him. He says, who am I? I, Lord, what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He's asking, why would you favor me, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem? Why why me? David's praising God for the astonishing scope of these promises in spite of his own unworthiness as the recipient of God's favor. He's rightly recognizing that God has done all of the work in establishing him as king. This hasn't been according to David's will, but according to God's. 
He's no right or claim to such favor from God. Consider the humility that God's revelation to David produces that we see in David in this response. He refers to himself in this passage only 17 times. So compare that with the number of times he talks about God. And 10 times specifically, he calls himself God's servant. God has called him that in verses 1 through 17. David picks up this theme and magnifies it even more, repeating it again and again. I am your servant. I'm in my place underneath your rule. This is a rightfully very humble response. David considers his own accomplishments as nothing in this moment, as insignificant. Who am I? Humanly speaking, though, David's a man of renown, of fame, of significant abilities. His abilities of both mind and body are extraordinary. He's famous for his skill in battle. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. Songs of praise are written about him. He's known as an extremely skilled musician and poet. He's a man of honor, success, and great abilities. The most honored one in all of Israel. He's the hero of Israel. He's caused his enemies to fear him. And yet, when he considers himself, according to God's revelation, not in comparison with other men, but with God and God's favor toward him, he's staggered. Who am I? Humility arrives when we see ourselves from God's perspective. Weak, sinful, needy. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we end up thinking things like this to ourselves. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thoughts and attitudes like this receive no grace from God. For God resists the proud. And that means the person who sees himself as self-sufficient, as independent, as completely capable on his own. But he gives grace upon grace to the humble. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Gratitude can never forget nor explain the past. How can David fathom God's plan ever being centered on him? A right view of God leads us to a right view of ourselves. When we see and are in awe of his greatness, we see ourselves for who we really are and we get in our place as servants, as a people in need. But David doesn't just talk about God's past grace he focuses in his, on his future grace in verse 19. He continues, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes to bring me to this place as king over your people. He understands he's just a small piece of what God is doing through him. God doesn't need David to accomplish his will. God's choosing and delighting to use David for his glory. In spite of the magnitude of God's blessings already given to him, they're little or insignificant in comparison to those that are coming after and through him. 
This is only the beginning, David's saying, of God revealing his glory and power and grace to all mankind. Think of this. How does David understand this, even to a small degree? The translation of a challenging section at the end of verse 19 in the ESV, though, that translation there is a good one. He says, this is instruction or a word for all mankind. God's doing something massive. David demonstrates he understands that the promise he's received is carrying universal and messianic implications. But finally, David highlights God's sovereign grace in verses 20 and 21. He recognizes that God's not acting out of some obligation or because David has done something in himself or because David is worthy himself. He's a man after God's own choosing. He's acting because of his own sovereign grace. David's highlighted his own unworthiness to receive these incredible promises. The only explanation then, according to David's mind, lies in God's gracious character and sovereign choice. David says it explicitly in verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart. And that means God's own desire or will. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it, to reveal it to your servant. Remember what God had said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. As they're about to enter the land, he tells them, for you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, You're the one, the one that I've chosen. He continues, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps steadfast love. Do you know what's more incredible, even more incredible about God's grace here to David? God already knows the horrific sins that David will commit that we'll see in a few short chapters from now. God already knows he's not worthy at all. He's going to be a bad representative of this covenant. But it's not about David's worthiness. God knows the very depth of David's sinfulness and still initiates this covenant of grace anyway. Why? Why? Why does God work through sinful, unfaithful, frail people? He does it to highlight his own grace. Paul makes that same point in 1 Corinthians 1.26 and following. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That's called to the faith. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. And he says, now here's the purpose, so that no one may boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God is jealous for his own glory. He's not seeking to save you so you can praise yourself. So you can say, look at how spiritually inclined I am or how spiritually sensitive I am or how wise I am. David understands this truth. That's why he's so God-centered in this response. That's why we have his response recorded here for us so that we might praise him for his marvelous grace to unworthy sinners. One author recounts how King Louis XIV of France requested that at his funeral in the cathedral of Notre Dame that all the lights would be put out. The cathedral would be darkened except for one lone candle burning on top of his casket at the front to demonstrate here lies a great king. However, when the court preacher rose to give his funeral oration, he strode over to the casket, blew out that candle, and began his message, only God is great. Only God is great. That's what David's saying here. That's his response. Why do you think God wants us to see this passage this morning? This is, in some way, a private prayer that David prayed before the Lord. Perhaps he wrote it down, perhaps a priest or some other person God intended for them to write this down for us to hear. Why do you think God wants us to hear this? What does he want us to see about himself in this passage, in David's response? Our God makes amazing, amazing, unfathomable plans for his people. And he reveals those plans in order that we might know him, that we might see his greatness and worship him alone. David concludes this exactly. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Again, according to your revelation. David's faith-filled response here serves us as a model of how all who recognize that they've received unearned eternal blessings from God should respond. Meditating and seeing God's grace always leads to doxology, to worship, to praise of this glorious God. Who is like you? Far too often our worship and praise is passionless and dull Routine, because we're preoccupied with ourselves, our priorities, our needs, our wants. We fail to remember just how much grace we've been shown in Christ. I was grateful for Jonathan's admonition this morning, saying, focus, think about why we're here, that we're here to praise and meet with the very God of heaven. We need that reminder again and again. Think of it, our God makes promises that he puts down in his word. He then acts for the sake of his people to fulfill those covenant promises. And he speaks of his future promises as if they're already fulfilled before those events have even happened or come to pass. No other God can do this. 
No other God has this power, supremacy, majesty, control, sovereignty. There's no God like our God. His revealed word, his written promises to us lead us to amazement, humble gratitude at what he's like. So what will continually change your response toward your God? What will help you get in your place of humble and grateful submission? What will help you love him more and treasure him above the lesser idols of this life that constantly pull at our attention, that we place there? The answer that David would give, it's a greater understanding of God's kindness, his favor, his grace to you. This requires us to regularly recall and meditate on all that God has promised to us in Christ. Do you think as we read David's response here that he's not thought about this carefully and deeply and long? Are you growing in your understanding of God's grace to you? Are you rehearsing it? Are you rehearsing these types of truths with your family, your friends, your life group? Are these the kind of things that you share with your neighbors, with fellow believers that are in need? You see, this, this is how we're changed. We see God revealed to us in the splendor of undeserved grace in our lives. David turns his attention now from God's grace in his own life and praises God for his grace to his people. Verses 23 and 24 demonstrate the different aspects of what it means to be God's people. God's working for the good of his people, rescuing them, establishing them as his own in this covenant relationship. David's reminding himself, he's reminding God in this praise of what he's done, ultimately for God's own glory. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again and notice the pronouns. Not to give you an English lesson here, but notice especially the reflexive pronouns. I'll highlight them as we read. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. What is God accomplishing by rescuing a weak and insignificant people like Israel? He's making a name for himself. He's intent on magnifying his character. He will glorify himself. Deuteronomy 4, 35, 34 and 35 highlights this truth. God says to Israel, he reminds them, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown so that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. David's saying the same here in 2 Samuel 7. Israel is unique and special 
not because of anything in them, but because of him. Our worth, our value is bestowed on us by our God. We're his creatures made in his image. If we're his children, we've been saved by the blood of his own son. And God does all of this to make a name for himself, to demonstrate, as he said, that there's no God like him. One author notes, because Jehovah is incomparable, it follows that the people he elected as his own and with whom he entered into communion, who of themselves had no qualities worthy of this attribute, may also be considered incomparable. They receive honor by their relationship to this God. Verse 23 tells us they're redeemed for his name's sake. We should notice in verse 23 the repetition of the word redeem. We see it as redeem and redeemed. It's used twice. It demonstrates two aspects of the way that God purchases people out of bondage. Redemption certainly carries the idea of being purchased with a price, but David is highlighting here rather the goal of that purpose. We see this most clearly in the last phrase of verse 23. He says, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. Those two prepositions are important. Redemption is from and for. It includes liberation and possession. There's a rescue out of misery and a relationship established with God himself. And think of it, these principles of redemption are still seen in our lives. We're told of them in the New Testament. Second, or Titus 2.14 tells us, Our Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Peter says this, We're likewise God's people for his possession. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of or from darkness into his marvelous light. Paul says it as well in 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What are these principles of redemption intended to produce in the lives of his people? In our lives. We're to remind ourselves again and again that we must not, we must not live for ourselves. But for him who died for us. Matthew Henry notes here of God's people, they were redeemed to be a peculiar people unto God. This people who are his own possession purified and appropriated unto himself that he might make himself a great name and do for them great things. God's caring for his people in this. The honor of God and the eternal happiness of the saints are the two things aimed at in their redemption. This magnifies God. Why love unlovely people? Because God is that kind of God. Pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis recounts the story of a missionary in Africa who'd rescued a native from the attack of a lioness. She'd mangled and almost killed him before the missionary intervened, saved his life, and cared for the man's wounds. After the man returned to his family for a time and recovered, he returned to the missionary and told him that the law of the African forest is that the rescued belongs to his redeemer. 
He said, I was almost dead, but now because of you, I'm alive. I am yours. Here's all my cattle, all my family, all that I have. You can do with me and with them as you like. That's what it means to be rescued. That's what it means to be redeemed. Do you understand God's claim on your life? If you're a believer, you belong to him. So glorify God with your body. He's rescued you from darkness, slavery, eternal death, and made you his own in a uniquely special relationship apart from anything that you could offer him. So what in your life should he not have claim over? But in verse 24, David emphasizes that God established Israel as his people. The two main words to notice in verse 24 are established and forever. David's picking up these themes from God's promises to him and to Israel in the past. And do you see how David is continuing to meditate on the character, the nature of God? God has made him his own and his people his own. This is personal. It's relational. This unique, awe-inspiring God is Israel's God and David's God. He will not fail to accomplish all these promises. These covenant promises are like the very personal and solemn vows taken at a wedding. God is saying in a covenant ceremony here, you are mine. And David's responding, I am yours. This is the depth of what it means when we see God say, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is an eternal commitment. It's a commitment he's made to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That no man can pluck us from the Father's hand. That he will keep all those that the Father has given to him. That God will bring to completion the work that he began in us. So our security in this life is found in God's amazing promises to us. It's not found in economic stability, in our own human ingenuity and wisdom, in our good plans. It's found in the hands, in the promises, in the work of God through Jesus. So this is where we find our identity and stability. Notice how Isaiah 43 highlights God's commitment and love for his people. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you'll be mine, and this is what this means. When you go through hardship, I'll be right there beside you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And he concludes, you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. God is saying that because he's purchased his people, he loves them. They're precious in his sight. He'll continue to carry them. They're his own. David has marveled at God's grace to him 
rehearsed and meditated on God's favor to Israel. Finally, he prays God's promises back to him. Now notice in verse 25, the verbs that David uses. Look at that verse again. They're imperatives, they're commands. He says, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Now, by praying in this way, David's not bossing God around. He's not placing himself above God. Rather, he's praying with confidence. He's acknowledging, he believes and accepts what the Lord has said. He's confidently asking God, now fulfill all your word. Keep all your promises. He says God's promises are true and good because he, the covenant-keeping God, has made them. So David prays that God will keep them. David prays in these last few verses, first, for God to fulfill his good word. He prays, secondly, for God to glorify his own name. David's aligning his heart with God's revealed will. Jesus teaches us to pray our prayers in similar fashion, with adoration and worship. He says, begin, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, David prays for his own house. God, you have made this promise, so may it please you to bless the house of your servant. Alexander McLaren writes, the main lesson of this prayer in verses 25 through 29 is that God's promise should ever be the basis and measure of prayer. We pray the word back to him. The mold into which our petitions should run is do as you have said. There's no presumption in taking God at his word. True prayer catches up the promises that have fallen from heaven and sends them back to him again. This passage then encourages us to know, know God's promises and pray them back to him. As we consider the needs in our lives and the lives of our loved ones, don't come up with your own ideas for God. This is my will for them. Pray God's will for them back to him. Do you know God's promises in this way? Can you pray this confidently? Perhaps as you read the word daily, it would be of great help to your prayer life, to your worship. If you would note God's promises in the passage that you're reading and then pray them back to him. Who is God revealing himself to be in this text? How do I pray this passage right back to God? One author summarizes these verses this way. Yahweh's declaration stirred David's devotions. His promises ignited David's praises and prayer. And that's how it should be. What will change and shape your worship, your view of God, your value of him? It'll be a heart lifted up with spiritual joy that comes from reflecting on the goodness of God, expressing humble gratitude for it, resting on God's promises and desiring God to glorify himself again. So preach the good news to yourself that God is gracious to un worthy sinners meditate on who he is as he's revealed himself through his promises do you value god in your heart in your life as you ought to david shows us in this passage that when we meditate on his word his promises to us we will praise him as we should 
So the only reasonable response to God's gracious promises is humble praise and grateful submission. What overwhelmingly gracious promises has God spoken to you that should provoke or stir up this kind of response? Perhaps today it would be worthwhile to look again at this text and just think through your life. Talk about it with your spouse or your family or another member of our body. God, what have you done for me? How can I rehearse again your promises and give you praise and make your name great for all you've done? Think of God's promises to you. He's promised you that he will keep you as his own forever. He says nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's given you his own name. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He's given you a new eternal family. He's building us, his church, into a new household. He's given you eternal life. This is life eternal, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He promises you his all-powerful presence always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives you his provision and protection at all times. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So what response should we have to promises like these and the thousands more just like them in the word of God? Who am I? that you should make these promises to me. What more can I say to you? There's none like you. No God beside you. Do, God, all that you have spoken for your own name's sake, for your own glory. God, make your name great in our families, among our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. Help them to see our passion for your glory. Oh, great God, make your name great among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us your word, this word, You intended for us to hear this today. To see your grace magnified. To hear again of your intention to make your own name great. And you have done that in our hearts together this morning. We worship you. We praise you. For the many, many ways that you have shown us your goodness, your favor, your love. Lord, may we truly meditate on all that you are doing for us and through us and in us. And may it evoke in us a heart of grateful worship and praise and submission. God, we want to pray with David, do all your will in my life, whatever it is you want to do. You can take me and use me as your servant however you desire. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. Father, shape us as we see your glory revealed. Help us to recognize your right to be in charge of our lives every day. Help us to point one another, our children, unbelievers, to this God who deserves our highest praise.
Help us now as we respond in prayer and in song to glorify your name in Jesus' name. I'd ask you this morning to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a minute as you rehearse and think about what God has done for you. Could I encourage you to respond in the ways that you've seen David respond? Let's turn our heart to worship. Perhaps there's something you need to confess. Please do that. But I'd like our response to be primarily worship. Worship.